was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came and went up to him at once said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him, and they seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple, teaching you, teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Let's pray. Father, we come in Jesus' name. Your Son, our Savior, our Lord, we come as those who have run. As those who, like your disciples, like your followers have been close, have pledged fidelity, have pledged allegiance, have even drawn our swords, and yet have run. And Lord, we confess that we have not followed you in the ways that we have sworn to, we have not followed you in the ways that we've pledged to. And we ask, Father, that in these moments, as we look at your word, as we remember this very familiar text, that you would restore, that you would correct, that you would encourage, that you would strengthen, that you would remind us what it means to follow you. Father, if there are any in this room this morning who have yet to Embrace Jesus as Lord, yet to surrender their heart, their life to the Lordship of the one who um, bore the weight of sin for their lives and ours. Father, we pray that today would be the day of salvation and that your spirit would draw them to repentance. Not just here, Father, not just in this place, but again, in every congregation and all throughout this city and all throughout this community, that you be bringing men and women and boys and girls to faith in Christ. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, As we look at this text, um, uh, we're reminded that last week, uh, the text that Adam uh, shared with us in uh, Mark chapter uh, 14, verses 27 through 42, among other things, Jesus prepared his disciples for the many ways in which they would abandon him in the hours ahead, um, you know, and, um, and in this passage, in this chapter, in Mark chapter 14, as Jesus is preparing to go uh, to a trial, uh, just a, a bogus trial, and as he's preparing for the cross, which we've said over and over as we've looked at the book of Mark, that Mark's gospel, um, it's not unique among, among the gospels, right? All of the gospels uh, have this in their mind, but Mark's gospel um, has... In its mind, 
that Jesus is going to the cross. Like everything about this gospel, the fluidity, the movement of this particular narrative is, um, is, uh, is a, a suffering servant, right? One of the critical influences of Mark's gospel, um, again, probably the earliest of the gospel accounts written, um, is Isaiah. And, and the way that, that, that Mark picks up on the idea of the suffering servant in Isaiah, as, uh, which, which uh, here um, in this particular account, right, you would think of Jesus being numbered among the transgressors here in Isaiah chapter 53. And so the, the fact that Jesus is, 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 um, is moving, the movement of this, of this narrative, and he's going to the cross. Everything in Mark's gospel is moving rapidly to Jesus going to the cross. And so here what we find is, is a short narrative. Um, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's been praying. His disciples fall asleep. He's warning them. And then all of a sudden, immediately as he's speaking, this crowd of soldiers comes. Right? We're not sure how large the crowd is. There's various accounts. Um, some think it's, it's a huge crowd of soldiers, and others think it's um, a manageable crowd of soldiers. But nonetheless, whatever the crowd of soldiers is, it's, it's, it's probably too big of a crowd, an oversized crowd of soldiers, to arrest a very, very peaceful man. Right? You can tell even by Jesus' response. Um, have you come at me with, with swords and with clubs to arrest a robber? We'll look at that, um, that particular saying. So what I want to do is I just kind of want to walk through this um, uh, stage by stage and look actually at not just Mark's account, but the other gospel accounts. This is found in all four gospels. Um, it's really different in, in John's gospel. In John's gospels, these guys come, and they, they come at Jesus, and he, he speaks to them, and they faint, and then they get up, and he says another thing, and they faint again, and, and it's just really unique in John's gospel. Uh, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they're, they're very, very similar in, in, in this account, but um, if we just look at Mark's gospel, and I, and I do want to highlight it, the thing that strikes us about Mark's gospel is at the end of it, throughout it, and at the end of it, is the aloneness of Jesus as his disciples abandon him. Right? Like, at the, by the end of this narrative, right, Jesus is alone with his captors. Now, he's alone with his captors in all of them, but the, the overwhelming sense that everyone flees and everyone leaves him even at the end right this little postscript that we get in verses 51 and 52 of this young man leaving and fleeing which we'll look at and so um and then i want to look at how that kind of speaks to us as the people of god so let's just kind of meander our way through this uh before we do that i i want to look at judas here for a second right um, Judas is a character that um, we know, we read the Gospels knowing what happens. And so whenever you see Judas's name, you already, if you've never read, or if you've read the Gospels before, you already know the end of the story. So the minute his name comes up in the beginning, you think, scumbag. You know, I know this guy. This guy is a dirtbag. Right? It's like watching a movie that you've already seen before, and you know who the villain is, and you're like, mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Right? Uh, a couple weeks ago, I took my daughter. Uh, she graduated high school. We went to see. We went to Chicago, 
uh, to see Hamilton, because tickets to see Hamilton are cheaper in Chicago than they are in New York, right? And uh, she's wanted to see this for a long time, and 16th birthday came along, I looked at it and was like, no, we're not buying, a, we're, not, we're, we're not paying house payments to go see a play. Um, so anyway, they were manageable to go to Chicago finally. So I get that this play is not relevant necessarily anymore. But nonetheless, we went to see it. It was, uh, you know, you look at it and it's like, wow, that um, visually stimulating. Um, but I have a history degree. I'm a historian. Um, I'm sorry, I'm not like Chris McCallops back there, historian. Like, I'm a nerd. I'm not that much of a nerd, but I'm a nerd. <laughs> right? And so I, I, I can't even get through the first song without looking at her and saying, this is like, this is not historical at all. And she's like, I want to enjoy this. Could you just stop it? Right? And what, what that musical reminded me of was Jesus Christ Superstar which I wrote a paper about in college because what it was, what Hamilton was, 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 uh, was a, an anachronistic look at, um, at the American Revolution through the eyes of the Upper West Side in the, in the early 2010s. Like what, what they want the American Revolution to say so it supports how they want to live today. And just, as, just as Jesus Christ Superstar was a look at the life of Jesus through the lens of the, 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 the late 1960s and the sexual revolution and everything that was going on and in a way to use that narrative to say that the way that we're, we're, we're looking at our lives in that point of time should be embraced and okay and, and using the Jesus narrative as a way to do that to the point where if you've ever watched Jesus Christ Superstar and, and it's fine and, you know, it's coming here in October... Right? So if you want to go watch it and see it, um, and the, the music is very catchy, um, it's annoyingly so. You'll be singing those songs for weeks. Um, the, the reality is this. Uh, Judas is the hero, right? And it's a, it's a, it's a recapture of it. Right? And so whenever I read this text, I always think of that particular play, right? And so if we, if we remember, we go up a little bit. Let's read Mark chapter 14, verses 10 and 11. Then, right, because um, Jesus Christ Superstar has, has him be the hero, and it's easy to look at Judas and to think that Judas is just the victim of, of power who kind of come to Judas and act like, um, you know, uh, they, they prey on Judas. But let's remember Mark chapter 14, verses 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. Right? So let's not in any way think that Judas was preyed upon or was like, you know, a victim in any of this. Right? Jesus Christ Superstar makes it look like Judas is the dude who recognizes that Jesus is indulgent and is falling prey to um, becoming this big, big headed dude whose head is so big he can't fit through a door, and so he goes to try to help his friend. Um, others would act like, no, Judas is preyed upon by the, by the people in positions of power, and he's poor, and so they come to him and they offer him some money. No, no, no. Judas sees an opportunity, and he goes on his own initiative to betray Jesus. 
Now, it's easy then for us to look at Judas and to say, you want to know what? This dude is the scumbag of all scumbags. He gets everything that he deserves. And you want to know? He does. He gets everything he deserves. But there are times in my life where I seek out opportunities to betray Jesus. I'm confessing that to you today. And there are times in your life where you, where sin is so in front of you, where you say, I know that this is wrong. I know that this is contrary to the gospel, but I want it, and I will embrace it, and then I will confess it, and it will be okay. Huh. So Judas goes, and he seeks it out. I'm not saying Judas thought that way. I think Judas thought another way. I think Judas, as we'll see, Judas plays just an evil, evil part. What I'm wanting to, to see as we look at this particular narrative is in the fleeing and is in the abandonment is the part that you and I play so often in that. So Judas goes to them, and then they think, it's, they think it's a good idea. And verse 11, and when they heard, they were glad. And they promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So here's his opportunity. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs, and the chief priests from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they make up a group called the Sanhedrin. This, this is the ruling party. So Judas, Judas uh, joins up with the ruling party. There's no doubt about that. Now, the betrayer had given them a sign. The one I kiss is the man. Now, you may think, well, that's just... This kiss that Judas gives to Jesus is just this sign. It's this common greeting for Judas and Jesus to in, engage with one another. And yet we don't really see Judas and Jesus. We don't see the disciples engaging Jesus often with a kiss. Now there are times in the, in the, in the scriptures where, where they do, where, where, where one comes to a, a teacher and kisses him, but not necessarily to Jesus. And the type of kiss with which Judas gives Jesus is a pretty unique kiss. Right? The one I kiss is the man, sees him, and lead, lead him away and under guard. And when he came, he went up and at once said, Rabbi, right? Greeted him with, a, with, with this particular title, Rabbi, teacher, master, master, right? This, this, this title of authority. And he kissed him. Now, Matthew's gospel has Jesus respond. Mark's gospel, Jesus doesn't say anything to Judas here. Right? Matthew's gospel, he says this. He says, friend, do what you came to do. Right? Uh, which I kind of like. I like that. Like, man, I'm, I'm man enough to handle this. Like, you do what you came to do, man. Right? Luke's gospel, Jesus says, Judas would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Now, the interesting thing about this, this word kiss, this particular word kiss, is it's used a couple other times in the, in, in the New Testament. Right? This particular type of kiss. Right? It's used um, in Luke chapter 7 with the woman who anoints Jesus' feet 
and she kisses them passionately, right? And she is at his feet anointing him. It's used in Luke chapter 15 for the father who embraces his prodigal son and he kisses him as he welcomes him home. Right? It's used in Acts chapter 20 with the Ephesian elders who are weeping over Paul as Paul is about to leave them and they know that they'll never see him again. And it says that they kissed him passionately. Right? This is not, this is not a dispassionate kiss. All right? Now, we're not Europeans. Right? We greet people with a handshake. But if you're ever in Europe, if you're ever in Italy or uh, uh, one of those other places, the greeting is, is the double kiss, right? Which for us is awkward. We have a tendency, we go left cheek first. It's supposed to be right cheek first. It's like, oh, don't know what I'm doing here. Right? It's not that type of kiss. The kiss that Judas gives Jesus is this passionate kiss. He gives him this passionate title, this title of honor. And then he gives him this passionate kiss. Right? And I would argue, right? and I'm not the, the first person to say this, the, right? This is James Edwards talks about this in his commentary on Mark, and I think, I think the point is profound and, and, and well worth repeating. That this is the first display of mockery in the passion of Jesus's Crucifixion, right? This is the first public declaration of open mockery. As Judas comes, right, and just mocks who Jesus is as he's betraying him, the one I identify with a kiss, right, as he gives him this title of honor and in in front of Jesus, face to face, giving him honor, showing him passion, and yet the very act with which he's coming is just diabolical and betraying. And, and I know many people, and I know my own life. There have been times in my own life, there have been times in your life, where, where one way in public, passionate, declarative, demonstrative passion, and yet inside, Right? Wicked to the core. Right? Betraying to the core. And the interesting thing about this is Jesus knows. Jesus knows my heart. Right? This is a sign for the people, right? Boom. This will identify Jesus. And so Judas comes and he kisses him. John doesn't even mention this at all, right? So again, I would say that Judas betrays Jesus. He identifies him with a kiss, and this, the kiss can be seen as the first public display of mockery. The second thing that you see here is this interchange with the sword, right? And the high priest's servant is injured by one of Jesus' disciples. Now, if you just look at Mark's gospel... No one is named. It just tells us that, that, a, that a bystander pulls out a sword, right? And it makes it seem as if this is just someone who's standing there looking on, and yet we know that the only other people that are there are Jesus' followers, 
right? So some of the commentators that you, that you might read make it seem as if this is just some disconnected person. And yet, if you read through the other Gospels, you see, right, exactly who this person is, right? Um, John chapter 18, verse 10 tells us that this, is Jesus, that this is Peter who pulls out a sword and cuts off the ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant, right? And, and, and you might say, well, why would they even have swords? And yet we know, Jesus said, do we have any swords? And one of his disciples says, we have, we have a sword. And Jesus says, it is enough, right? We have one. And so we have this, this moment here where then in, the, in it, again, Mark doesn't tell us much, right? They laid hands on him, verse 46, and they seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck a servant on the high, of the high priest and cut off his ear. And that's all Mark tells us. But Matthew says this, then Jesus said, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that it shall be so? Right, so Jesus is saying, we're not going to fight this battle. We don't have to fight this battle. We're going to rest in the sovereignty of my Father. If my Father wanted me to fight this battle, I could fight this battle. I'm not going to fight this battle. Luke tells us in Luke 22, that Jesus said no more of this, and he touched Malchus's ear, and he healed him, right? That in the moment where his enemy, right, is suffering, and it would be uh, uh, easy for any one of us to act like, man, you got what you deserved. You're falsely accusing me. That Jesus instead, out of compassion for his enemy, who's not really even his enemy, that Jesus healed him. And in healing him, he covers Peter, right? He makes it so that Peter, Peter's sin and transgression is, is something that the, the, the soldiers aren't going to chase him down for. And then, Pete, then Jesus confronts these men. Verses 48 and 49. And he said to them, have you come out against me? Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? That word robber can also mean, have you come out against one who was inciting rebellion? Have I, have I incited a rebellion? Are people rioting in the streets? Am I a political revolutionary? Now, there are people in our day and age that want to say that Jesus is, in fact, a political revolutionary, Right? But he himself is saying, am I a political revolutionary? Have I incited some sense of rebellion? Right? And here, he's speaking to the soldiers. Right? That you come at me with these clubs. And then he turns, right? And he says, day after day. Now he's, he's speaking to the representatives of the elders and the, and the chief priests. Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. Right? I haven't done all of this rabble-rousing. Instead, you heard everything that I said in the temple. Right? Everything that I said in the temple. Now, we know that the teaching that Jesus taught in the temple 
was completely revolutionary. Completely revolutionary. Day after day I was with you in the temple, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Now it would be easy to think, and they all left him and fled, would mean that these people left him and fled. Verse 50. But it's referring instead to his disciples. Jesus asks, I was with you in the temple teaching. Jesus asked them why they have come at him cause a rebellion. Right? This is included in Matthew, Mark, but not in John. Right? He's talking to them about the overkill of why, why so many? Why are you treating me like this? But he wants the scriptures to be fulfilled. And we see that in verse 50. Flip back with me to Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 13. Right? If you can find Zechariah, don't worry, it'll be up on the screen. In Zechariah chapter, chapter 13, starting in verse 7, it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. And the whole land declares the Lord, two-thirds, and he goes on and on. Right? Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And we see that happen right here. Mark chapter 14, verse 50. They come at Jesus with the clubs. Now, they don't strike him, but they arrest him. They seize him. And, and then all of a sudden, it says that they all fled. And Jesus is by himself. He's alone. These disciples who have, who have walked with him for, for, for three years or whatever the time period actually may be in history, right? These disciples who have journeyed with him, who have, who have watched him, who have listened to him, who have eaten with him, who have slept next to him, who have seen him calm storms, who have watched him raise dead, uh, heal eyes, heal arms, heal legs. These disciples who have witnessed him do all of these things. Now in a moment of self-preservation, are gone. They have run. And the interesting thing is the soldiers aren't even interested in them. There's no mention of pursuit of them. There's no mention of, of arresting them. There's no mention of even the slightest bit of, of taking them into, into their possession. Right? But they're gone. And then you get this very interesting aside in verses 51 and 52, which we don't have in any of the other Gospels. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. Right? They don't seize the disciples, but they seized this young man. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now, most historians believe that this young man is most likely Mark, the author of the gospel, right? Most think that Mark's family had money, um, that Mark's family was indeed the ones who hosted Jesus and his disciples uh, in the upper room uh, for Passover, uh, so therefore they would have hosted them uh, for what we know of as the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. And so Mark... Uh, whether, whether with the knowledge of Jesus and the disciples or whether just as a curious young man who followed, uh, you know, in the shadows, who knows, right, um, is present in Gethsemane that night. Just wearing a linen cloth. 
Okay. And when they grab him, all right, like Joseph running from Potiphar's wife, he runs out of his clothes, runs away naked. Now, it'd be easy to look at this and to think, oh, wow, see, you know, he's, he's resisting arrest. He's, he's sticking it to the man. But he, too, is fleeing. Amos chapter 2, right, Scott? Amos chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, says this. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself. Nor shall he who rides the horse save his life, and he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. This idea of young men in the day of the Lord, in the day of judgment of Israel, right? The young men fleeing naked. Now whether this is Mark or not, who knows? But that's what most historians believe, because who else would know that this had actually even occurred. And this idea that we get at the end is that everyone that was with Jesus prior to, those that he had encouraged to stay awake, those that he had encouraged to to watch and pray, those that he had encouraged to endure with him, right? Those that had pledged fidelity with him, that at the first sign of trouble, they're gone. And he's alone. We know that he's not completely alone because his father is with him. But as far as his people, they're gone. Now they'll get a little bit of courage. They'll follow at a distance in a little while. But in this moment, they flee. And as I read this account, and as I think about it, I just think about me. I think about you. I don't think about particulars. I just think about us and our propensity, right? And how prone we are to flee. How prone we are as his followers, those of us who've pledged our fidelity to run in the face of temptation, right? To our false gods, to run in the face of persecution, to run in the face of hardship. Jesus has invited us into relationship. He's brought us into this place of deep intimacy with him. This place where he brings us close, where he opens up the books, where he shares with us who he is, and he reveals to us everything we need to know. And where you and I say, that's great, but I want this, or I want that, or I'm afraid of this, and I'm afraid of that. So if I get too close, I'm going to lose this, or I'm going to lose that. And when the slightest bit of opposition comes, we run. Or when the slightest bit of temptation comes, we run. Now, I recognize that's not all of us, And yet at the same time, I recognize that at various parts in our life, that is all of us. 
And so I want to close this time this morning by reading to you from the book of Hebrews. You may say, Hebrews, how is that connected? I don't know that it is, other than these are the words of the Lord. Written to a group of people in Rome who wanted to run. We walked through the book of Hebrews, I don't know when. It seemed like forever ago, and yet it probably wasn't that long ago. But if you remember that, we remember that the audience that the writer of Hebrews was writing to was a group of Christians who were contemplating abandoning Jesus and returning back to Judaism. They were, they were thinking of, in the, in the face of, of persecution and hardship, running. And this week I've been just, not even in preparing for this, but just in my own life, I've just been reading through this particular chapter over and over again. Um, and I wanted to read it this morning. There's going to be no points that come up on the screen. I'm just going to read through this text and meander through it. And, um, and I don't know what page it's on in your pew Bible, but it's going to come up here. So this is the word of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 1, says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, if you remember in Hebrews 11, the author has reminded us of those who came before us, who endured so many things and remained steadfast. Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, not away from him, but to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him. Now think about Jesus standing in that garden, all alone, being ushered out in chains, right? Clubs, torches, swords, his followers abandoning him, about to be tortured, about to be crucified, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, right? Like, when, when I am tempted to sin, who am I considering? I'm considering me. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you might not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addressed you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? This is not a very 2019 United States of America passage, I recognize. If you are left without discipline, 
in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have all had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Breach. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Think of Jesus about to endure the cross. For the moment, all discipline seems painful, not pleasant. But as he took on the wrath of God, it bore the fruit of righteousness. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your knees and make straight paths for your feet so that when, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Right? Who gave in for a momentary thing. For you know that afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought with tears. This is what I wanted to focus on here. For you have not come to what can be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest, the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg, though no future further messages may be spoken. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. People of God, listen. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the holy Jerusalem, and the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enthroned in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of all things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. In the garden, in a moment, a moment when... Hardship came. Those who pledged their lives ran. I think our propensity, my propensity, but I think I've been around enough people to know, I think our propensity 
when hardship comes is to run. And I just want to encourage you with the scriptures, when hardship comes, to endure, to look to Jesus, the author, the perfecter of your faith, to remember what he endured on your behalf, to remember the kingdom that is yours, right? To remember whose you are and who you belong to. Let's pray. Father, we come in Jesus' name. And we thank you for what your son endured for us, your people. He endured the shame of the cross. He endured the punishment for sin. He bore the wrath of God. And that when we, your people, who deserve death when we play fast and loose he still beckons us to come home so Lord I pray that you would strengthen us that you would encourage us that you would call us back home Father if there are those in this room this morning Who, who claim to be close and yet in their lives are so far away. I pray that you would, by a work of your spirit, bring them to a place of repentance and renewal. If there are those in this room this morning who have just run away from you, Father, I pray that you would bring them to a place of restoration. And Father, if there are those here today, and I'm sure that there are, who have never yet embraced Jesus as Lord, I pray that you'd bring them to a place of salvation. That they would trust Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, for the salvation of their soul. And Lord, I pray that each of us would have as our hope not our ability to please you, not our ability to earn anything from you or for you, but have as our hope Jesus and the kingdom of God in which he has purchased entrance for us in. God, glorify yourself in your people, we pray. And Lord, over the next few weeks, as we look further into this narrative, as we think about his trial, as we think about his crucifixion and ultimately his resurrection, Lord, we pray that you would continue to encourage your people to look at Jesus, the author, the founder, the perfecter of our faith. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.